Good morning, everybody. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you here worshiping with us at Parkview today. If you're new, especially want to welcome you. I would love to meet you after the service or invite you to talk to anybody wearing one of those green tags that says, can I help you? And they'd love to answer any question that you have about the church. And also just make sure that if you go here regularly and you kind of look around and see somebody that you don't recognize, like you are totally commissioned, like just to say hello, welcome people as you leave. That'd be awesome. So let me give you a couple quick announcements and updates of things coming up. So next Sunday, we shift to a new schedule for the rest of the summer. So we'll have two services at 9 o'clock and 1030. So if you come next week at 930, I'll probably be preaching and I'll call you out. So no, I won't do that, I promise. But but just get here either at 9 or 1030. And I'm excited for just kind of that new rhythm for the summer. So that's coming up. Also, as you notice in your bulletin when you came in today, um, the 2020 vision campaign is rolling. And so the uh, official closing on the L happened this week. So that's officially now Parkview East and Faith Academy property. So we're excited about that. Another kind of new thing going on is tonight, we are meeting with people uh, who have been worshiping here that are looking at and praying about uh, moving to North Liberty to um, join with the folks at Heartland. And so again, we're looking for about 30 or 40 people who will commit uh, to do that. And so uh, we're meeting tonight at 6.30 out at Heartland. And uh, if you cannot make that meeting, you can still just let us know you're interested. And there's a interest survey that we're asking people to fill out. So, so read those emails you get from us during the week. Like you can link on to things like that and be in communication with us. But again, be in prayer about that. And just to repeat, our desire for that campus is for the first year, about 30 or 40 people from here really pray and go and then work with the folks that are already there. And then the rest of us continue to come here. And so our desire is that that building would fill and maybe add a service in the next year, but that would fill with people that today aren't going to church. That's kind of the idea of a new campus. So be in prayer about that. We're real excited about that. Then the last thing you'll notice is in your bulletin, there are two handouts. And so one is and you'll hear about this for a couple of weeks, that we're really ready to move forward now with our financial response to the 2020 vision campaign. And so uh, this is a good summary for you, again, of the vision and of what we're calling the church to. And our goal is, this is a faith goal, but by the end of 2019, that we have totally paid for uh, the 2020 vision campaign. That would be awesome. And it's a big step of faith, but God can do that as we give sacrificially as individuals and families, God can bless us. And then as we as a church step out to really bless this community, we will watch God meet our needs. So we're excited for that, but there's still a faith component to this. So I invite you as individuals or families to be praying about what your commitment will be. And if we could collect these by the middle of July, that would really give our leadership a good understanding of, of where we're headed. And so um, again, be in prayer for this. And this giving towards 2020 vision is above and beyond what we normally give to our ministry fund here. So uh, it's a big step, but uh, we're excited. Again, God's going to gonna honor our, our faith and our desire to get the gospel out. So please uh, pray over those. And then lastly, there's another one of these that talks about a serving response. And so whenever you're a church that begins to multiply, what you're doing is at the place where you're sending people out, there's going to be new needs to serve. And so uh, the encouragement here is we've prioritized 
uh, the kind of roles that we need on Sundays to kind of keep Sunday morning rolling. And so encourage you to pray about those areas. And if you check one of those boxes, you're not signed up for the next 20 years. It's not like every Sunday you're doing. In fact, a lot of these roles are periodic. Like it could be six or 10 times a year, 12 times a year, depending on what you're signing up for. And so really, all we're asking you to do is pray and then inquire about one of these areas. And then the staff will reach out to you about what we're looking for, okay? And so uh, if you are kind of new-ish to Parkview, sometimes serving is a great way to not only feel like you're contributing and you're helping things out, part of the team, but it's also a great way to meet people. Like just organically, you'll meet the people you're serving with and you'll develop some friendships. I think of over the years, people that I've painted you know, old homes with or just the different things we've done over the years as a church when we've served. Uh, you'll meet people there that for the rest of time you see them in the foyer and you know who they are. So there's a real advantage, I think, to serving for you personally. So please be in prayer about that as well. And then real quick, on our staff team, so yesterday we had a beautiful wedding here. Uh, Samantha, who has been in our office, one of our admins who is now on the 24-7 staff team, um, just had a beautiful wedding, married a guy named Colin that they met in the college ministry, and um, it's hilarious. Like, I've never heard her senior and high school brother gave one of the toasts that had this room, like, rolling. Like, he's a stand-up comedian. So Samantha's family, two sets of twins. She and her sister are fraternal twins, and then her two brothers are identical twins, all right? And the odds of that are 1 in 90,000. So it was funny to have her brother turn to Colin, his now new brother-in-law, and say, it's great to have a brother finally a brother from another womb or something like that. So, man, he just had the place rolling. So, uh, but if you know Samantha, her heart, she serves here so well and so faithfully. It was just fun to honor her and see, uh, be part of her wedding yesterday. But then, uh, kind of on a prayer note, uh, so John Page is a guy that has only been around Parkview for about a year. He married Rachel Misnick. And so Mark Misnick is one of the elders here at Parkview and uh, Mark and Lisa. So Rachel's been in the church a long time. But um, you would recognize John because he's been serving all over the church. And in fact, just recently, he has joined our college ministry staff, too. He had a, a great career involved in a college ministry in college, and he's a, an amazing blessing to our team here. Well, the other day after work, he was leaving here, and he found out that his mom up in Minneapolis was just walking a dog and had a double brain aneurysm, and she died um, that next day. And so just a real sudden sudden thing. And so um, I just want to read part of a text I got from John this morning, um, been in touch with him and praying with him. I want you to hear in this uh, the power of the gospel. Like at a time like that, where's your hope going to be, right? And so here's what John is asking for us to pray for. Would you pray uh, for my unbelieving family? So his mom believed in Jesus, his dad, his sister, but there's some extended family that does not know Jesus. And so he says, would you pray that my unbelieving family would be rocked by the beauty of the gospel and there would be an urgency to respond as they reflect on his mom's life. Isn't that a beautiful thing to pray for at this time? And then he says, they are finding comfort and peace in Christ. And so please be in prayer for John and Rachel as they are mourning, but then they also try to reach out to John's family in these days too. So let me pray for us and then we'll We'll go on with our service. So, um, so Jesus, I thank you that what we gather to celebrate today is so powerful that even in the midst of tragedy, this gospel that we celebrate and enjoy today is bringing hope and peace and comfort in one of the hardest 
times in a man's life. So would you still please continue uh, to comfort profoundly John and Rachel and John's dad and sister as they just walk through this very difficult grief. May we as a church be faithful to pray and would John and his family, God, just put the gospel on display and would you use this uh, to honor John's mom's life by bringing people to Jesus through this time. So we pray for that. Father, we pray for us as a church to be faithful with this gospel that you've entrusted us with, that we would not just sit on it and be content with that we know this, but would we be a church that desires to spread your gospel. Thank you for the step of faith that we have taken as a church, God, to get the gospel into North Liberty and to the East Side campus. And so we just ask you to give us faith to knock out these financial challenges ahead of us, just to knock this off by the end of next year. And that as we trust you as a family and as a church family, that we will see that you are generous and good to us, that we cannot outgive you. So stretch us, give us faith to knock out these financial needs. So we're trusting you for that. And so now, God, as we step into a very powerful part of your word, would you speak clearly to your people? May it come through loud and clear that you are God of mercy. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right, let me get back to my phone. All right, uh, Stopwatch, so I know when to stop. Okay, so if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. So what we're doing this summer is we're going through a series called uh, After God's Heart. We want to be a people that are pursuing the heart of God. And so we're looking at the life of David, uh, some things that happened in David's life, and then we're also just looking through some of the Psalms that either David wrote or that he worshipped by. Again, that the goal would be that we as a people, that we as a church, would be a people known for reflecting the heart of God. And so last week we looked at King David at the very beginning of his career as king, that, that he was anointed king, but there was a period of time where he was not yet on the throne. And so it was in that time that he was maybe a teenager. We looked at the, the classic David-Goliath story. We saw God do amazing things through this little kid because he trusted in the power of God. He remembered he was God's faithfulness to him in his past and he had a true love for God's word. When God said, I will help you, David believed it, right? And so that's why this small kid took out the big giant. And so some of us maybe looked at that last week and go, well, there's no way God could knock out big giants in my life. And we came back and said, yes, there is a way. God loves to work through weak people who cry out to him to be their strength. So that was last week. And I wish that we could say that all of David's life was like that. that. And actually, for a while in David's life, there was a good trajectory. If you follow the life of David up through about 2 Samuel chapter 10, you'll see a man that God greatly blessed and greatly used to expand the kingdom of Israel. That David grew to amazing prominence internationally and that God's name was being elevated through the life of David. But then we hit the passage we're going to look at today. And we're going to see that David, about 35 years later, takes a big fall, like one of the one of the most horrific sin falls that you'll see in the scripture. And I love that about the scripture, because just like some of us last week might have said, well, there's no way I could take out a giant like David did. Maybe some of us today would say, well, there's no way I would ever do something as stupid as David did. And I think God's in his word saying, you know what, this, this is us. Like this is where our hearts go. And so what we're looking for this morning 
is how did David respond? What happened in David's heart after the big fall? Like what, what did he learn about God? And that's where our hearts need to follow as well. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, let me start reading in verse 1. It said, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So the first question you might ask is, is this the same David? You know, like sometimes you read the New Testament, there's a couple of different Johns. You might think, well, this must be a different David than the David and Goliath David, right? Maybe hopefully asking that, you say, no, uh, this is the same David. And so then you'd have to ask, well, what happened? Like how could a man who did such great things, believed in the word of God, like clung to God's faithfulness, trusted God's power, how could a man like that do something as horrific as this? Okay, so what happened? So let me ask you, um, so... This time of year, we'll hear about tornado watches and tornado warnings, right? Okay, full disclosure, how many of you guys think that a tornado watch is worse than a tornado warning? Just put your hand up. Like, which is worse, a watch or a warning? You guys are, I'm not seeing any hands go up. Last hour, there were some hands. That bothers me. Okay, so if you live in Iowa more than two years, you should know. A watch means conditions are favorable, right, for a tornado. But a warning means a tornado is on the ground. You better get in your safe place, right, whatever that is. So, so yeah, so let's talk about what are the, what, right now let's say, let's just look at what David was going through. Let's call this a temptation watch, a sin watch. Like what are the conditions that David stepped into that are favorable for a big fall. Okay, let's look at a couple of things here. So first, the first temptation, the first like factor going on here that would lead to a big fall is idleness. Idleness. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Did you notice it said the time when kings are out to battle, David sent Joab. That was his right-hand man. He sent the army while he remained in Jerusalem. There's no footnote that David was on the disabled list, that he blew a hamstring, that he was out for three weeks. There's nothing like that. He, we have no indication why, other than David is putting himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so the most difficult times to fight sin are not when things are hard. Because when things are hard or busy, we're dependent on God. But, but the times when sin and fighting sin is the most difficult is during free time. Nothing wrong with vacation. Nothing wrong with taking a break, but just be careful that sometimes stepping out of rhythm, putting yourself in places you normally aren't, is a condition that can lead to a fall. Okay, here's the second one. Boredom, okay? Boredom. It says, late in the afternoon, he arose from his bed. Like, if you're in bed in the afternoon, I, I get it. Like, I, I know there's a guy in med school that um, just spent, like, all night 
couple nights in a row studying for boards he took yesterday, nine-hour boards. Like, if that guy's in bed this afternoon, we get that, right? Isn't that good? But if you're the king that's supposed to be out at battle, there's no reason why we're not seeing here that he should be lounging and getting up from bed in the afternoon. We don't see any indicators there. That's another danger sign uh, because David is bored. Listen to this quote from a a pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says that sin is always, in some sense, a life of boredom. Like as soon as we begin to get bored with God, as soon as we begin to wonder about what's so good about God, that's when we begin to wander from God. All right, so on the dashboard of your spiritual life, if bored with God, light is flashing, that's a dangerous place to be. If God is no longer exciting you, um, bringing you joy, bringing you life, then you're going to be susceptible uh, to sin. It means you're looking somewhere else to find your life. You're looking at sex or materialism or gossip or slander. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who spoke out against the Nazis. This is what he says about our battle with temptation. He says, in our members, there's a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce, be it a sexual desire, ambition, vanity, desire for revenge, love of fame, or power or greed. At this moment, Satan here does not fill us with a hatred of God, but he fills us with a forgetfulness of God. In the midst, in the intensity of temptation, God becomes unreal to us. And so if you see that in your heart this morning, that mm, God's not that big a deal, God doesn't really just raise your pulse, doesn't get you excited, um, you're, you're in a danger spot. The conditions are favorable for a fall, all right? So uh, the last one here is isolation, isolation. So I don't claim to know the inner workings of David's social network, but from what I do understand in the scripture, probably the most likely person to get in David's face was this man named Joab, his right-hand man that he had sent away to battle. So now, to me, it appears that David is alone. He has no one immediately near him who has permission to go and challenge him. And so, in fact, you saw in the part that I read, when David said he inquired of a messenger, like, who is this woman? And the, the messenger's unnamed, which means not a very prominent person or was a person who intentionally wanted to remain anonymous. Like, I don't want to challenge the king. Because just think about it. Who would, who, it would take amazing courage to confront the king. Wouldn't you think, like, who am I? This is David. He killed Goliath. He's built this kingdom. He's, he loves God and his word. Like, he must know what he's doing. Maybe he wants to pray with this woman. Like, maybe he wants to read the Bible with her. And so, who am I to, even though there's some question here, this, this person and nobody around David had the permission to challenge him or to ask him the hard question. In fact, what you see is that if anything, David needed somebody to blow a whistle, somebody to throw a flag, somebody to just grab him before he goes over the cliff and say, David, what are you doing? In fact, this, give this guy some credit. He said, isn't that, isn't that woman uh, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And then he throws out there, isn't that Eliam's daughter? He's trying to personalize her. Like, it's not just a woman bathing. It's not just an object for your gratification. This is a person. In fact, those names he sent out there, Uriah the Hittite and Eliam, who was Bathsheba's dad, both of those men were in David's uh, collection of mighty men. It's a really cool study sometime, but 
I told you last week, there was a season in David's life where he was told he was going to be the king, but he had to wait before he could get on the throne to be king. And so in that period of waiting, David went through a lot of different hardships and people trying to attack him. And this group of men volunteered to give their lives to fight for David and to protect him. And two of those men were Uriah the Hittite and Eliam, Bathsheba's dad. These were tight friends of his. And those names meant nothing to him. This is Uriah's wife. This is Eliab's daughter. Like, what are you doing? And he just flew right through it. Because here's the danger. When we are by ourselves, we can talk ourselves into just about anything. When we're by ourselves, we can just, in our own minds, we can justify just about anything and kind of excuse it away or explain it away. And so a man will fall in private way before he falls in public. And what appears here is this isn't now just a watch, but this is a warning that these factors are all coming together and how David has committed a big sin. And so as you go on with the story, you would hope they would end there, that David would come to his senses and, and stop what he's doing, but instead he didn't stop there. If you were to keep reading the passage, David then tried to cover up what was going on. And, and so in the midst of the cover-up, um, he ended up having Uriah killed. You have to read the details how that happened. So by the end of chapter 11, David has committed, if you're scoring at home, keeping track, like David has committed adultery, lying, hypocrisy, and murder. Sin always makes us stupid. It always numbs the senses. And trying to hide it doesn't work. When you try to hide it, all that happens is that you pile more and more and more sin on top. And sin doesn't warn you of consequences. It's not like with every sin there's going to be a warning. Oh, by the way, tomorrow morning your hangover is going to be horrible. Or by the way, you're ruining a family right now. By the way, you're losing a marriage right now. You're, you're not going to hear those things. And so David was in a very dangerous, dangerous place. And when you get to 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven, what's happened by now is that Uriah has been killed that there's a mourning season. And so verse 27 says, And when the mourning was over, David sent, and he brought Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. And so now nobody would expect, okay, how did she get pregnant? And David was trying to bring Uriah home, so it would look like he got her pregnant, and he would have nothing to do with it. So, so now Uriah's dead, and David is married, so now this, this birth is not going to maybe be as obviously a sin as it should have been. So, but bottom line, she bore him a son, but the thing... 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. the thing that David did displeased the Lord. So he tried to cover it up. Maybe nobody will know. Bathsheba's my wife. Um, but what he did displeased the Lord. God saw what he did. So the Bible talks about that sin can bring pleasure for a season. Okay, that's why sin is so tempting. That's why so many people sin. That's why we sin. We don't always feel negative immediately for our sin, but but what David experienced is so clearly described in a couple of different psalms. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are, are written out of response to what happened when David sinned with Bathsheba. Listen to his description in Psalm 32, verses 2 to 4. He says, when I kept silent, so he's playing the game. On the outside, it looks okay, but inside he knew that he had sinned. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
just inside, this is killing him. Like sin, sin's desire for us is to kill us. The great Puritan theologian and scholar John Owen said that you should be killing sin lest sin be killing you. And what David's doing here is he's playing the game and he's making it look good, but in his soul, this, this sin is killing him, all right? And so now we come to the next phase where God in his grace confronts this sin. And so this man named Nathan is the guy that is sent to confront David. Nathan was a prophet. Nathan was a man that David respected. And so in chapter 12, Nathan comes in to talk to David and he tells him a story. He tells him a story of a very wealthy man who had many sheep, but yet who saw a poor man who had one sheep that that man dearly loved. And this king took that poor man's sheep. And so when this story got to the punchline, look at 2 Samuel 12, verse 5. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. So this is just in the story. David is really ticked at this man in the story, right? And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Like, wow, David, like pretty passionate man, really got wrapped up in this story and said, man, whoever took that sheep deserves to die. And then Nathan looked at David and said, you are that man. Boom. Boom. David's eyes are open for the first time to realize what he had done and had been confronted and it was now out and it was now known and David's heart was ripped open. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again says this, that sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. So again, when David was in isolation, no one to confront him. But now that Nathan comes in, his sin is exposed. You know, one good takeaway for us already from this story is to make sure that we have people in our lives that don't hear from us just when things are going really well, but also people that love us enough that we let them know the times where we struggle and the times where we are in battle and that we can go to them for help, right? Listen to the way Hebrews 3 describes it. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, what we need to start seeing this church as is this isn't a place where everybody has it all together. And so we just come here and pretend like we've got it all together. And you just look around and you go, wow, everybody here has got it together. I guess I do too. And if I don't, I'm not going to tell anybody. I should keep that quiet. Like we should flip that. And this is actually a place of spiritual triage. Like this is a place where broken and sinful people are coming before a merciful God. And we're here to worship him that he still loves us, and we're here to admit to one another that we need each other. Like, we, we can't do this Christian life alone. We can't follow Jesus alone. That's a dangerous place to be. That's putting yourself right in the midst of a tornado watch. Like, you need to be in places where people know you, where people are praying for you, people are asking you questions, so that if one of us is wandering away, We've got others right there saying, nope, let's come on back. Did you see Hebrews describe that as that we exhort each other, we encourage, we challenge each other every day. 
to keep following Jesus because sin is so deceitful, all right? So I know uh, we've got a lot of reasons why we're not in a community group. You know, we'll talk about how busy we are and all this. And, and sometimes it can be awkward to get this kind of thing started, you know, to get to start to know people so that somewhere in here we can start being real with each other. That's all really awkward. But can I tell you that that leads to a beautiful spot of growth? And it's a lot more awkward to just wander off into a big sin and then try to explain our way out of that or to try to deal with that. That That is a lot more awkward than on the front side. Let's get in community. Let's be intentional. Let's get people in our lives that know us and are praying for us. All right? So, so the next step here is that David, when this sin is confronted before him, he confesses. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then I mentioned two psalms that David wrote. Psalm 51 is one we're not going to have time to unpack totally today, but Psalm 51 is David's amazing response to the sin that he has just committed with Bathsheba. And I'm going to read a couple of these verses to you. Psalm 51, verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We just pause there. And as you continue to read through, you're going to see three themes in David's prayer of confession. Number one is he focuses on the character of God. And did you notice the character of God that he, he pleads with first? He pleads for the mercy of God. And he, he trusts in the loyal love of his God. You know what's interesting is that if you look in the Old Testament, the times where God reveals himself as a merciful God, it's always in the context of God's people have just sinned or God's people are seeking restoration with him. All right? So in those contexts, God wants his people to know that I am a merciful God. Like we, we maybe by then know he's a holy God, he's a judge, he hates what I've done. Maybe at those moments we don't need to be convinced of those things. But what God wants us to know at the front of the line is like out of all my attributes, I want my people to know that I am a God of mercy. So when we are caught in sin, our propensity is going to be to run from God. Our propensity is going to be to be afraid of God. And God does not want his kids to do that. He says, I want you to know that I am a God of mercy. You don't run from me when you're in sin. You run to me. You run into my arms. And so David just pled with God to be merciful for him. And God is merciful with sinners. That's our only hope, you guys. That's, that's why we're here. That's the only way we could be Christians or followers of Jesus is that God is merciful, all right? But maybe somebody needed to hear that specifically this morning because you're, you're loaded with shame and guilt and you know what you did was really stupid. You know what you did really hurt people, but maybe you didn't know this morning that God's response to you is mercy. He says, come to me, don't run from me, all right? Second is that David admitted his sin and he admitted his need for cleansing. If you read this psalm, there's at least three or four different words that David uses to describe his sin. Like he's trying to be just incredibly thorough. What I did was absolutely wrong, no doubt about it. There's no blaming, there's no excuses. Uh, he is just calling his sin 
a sin. And then in light of God's mercy, what he is asking for is, God, I have no doubt what I have done was absolutely wrong. Would you forgive me? God, would you wipe this sin out? Would you blot out this sin? And so the big ask is, God, would you wash this sin away from me? And then finally, you'll see the next thing David asks for is he asks to have his joy back. Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? You know, I would say it's probably true for all sin, but for sexual sin, this is especially true. That David didn't pray for better accountability software. He didn't pray for an accountability partner. He didn't pray that he wouldn't be tempted anymore by women. He went to the root cause of all sin, but especially sexual sin, that God would my joy be in you. Like there's, there's an author that calls it the expulsive power of a greater love. Like if we find our hearts being drawn to the wrong thing, the way the gospel can help us cut the ties with that sin is when we replace it with a greater love. And so David is asking for, God, would you be my joy? Would you restore to me the joy of being in connection with my creator, God? And so... Um, so he cries out for confession, and as a result, uh, God forgives him, all right? So don't misunderstand me here, like if you, one author put it, that the rest of David's life now is an avalanche of hardship. Like there are so many things that break down in David's family because of this sinful act. So he experiences pain, okay? So uh, God can forgive our sins, but there is still going to be some consequence for what we've done. And so, but that is certainly what happened to David. But David heard these words from Nathan the prophet. He said, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. Like what David pled for, God, would you remove this sin? Would you forgive me of this sin? God heard that prayer and God forgave David for what he had done. In fact, that forgiveness is so thorough that if you look in the New Testament, in Acts 13, 22, so this is like hundreds of years after what David did, in the Word of God, David is still described as a man after God's heart. God does not define David by this horrific act. David is still defined by God as a man who seeks my heart. So let's wrap it up with this. Probably are three big questions we've got to answer. There may be some people that read this story that would say, wait a minute, okay, wait a minute. How could God just turn his head from such a big sin? That's horrific. Do you see what happened to Bathsheba? Do you see what happened to Uriah? Do you see what happened to a whole country that was trusting their king to be the righteous judge of the people? How could God just... Like, is God just winking at sin? Is God just kind of shoving sin under the rug? And we need to say no, because you don't just look at David, but we're looking at the greater David. We're looking at Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, who became the ultimate and eternal king of God's people, the righteous, merciful, and powerful king. When he came to the earth and lived a sinless life, it was Jesus who died on the cross, uh, not because of his sin, but because of David's sin and because of our sin. And so when God forgave David, it wasn't God saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Just kind of sweep that one. It mattered. And God in his justice and God in his holiness demanded a payment 
And Jesus Christ on the cross took the punishment that David deserved so that future Davids, like us, when we cry out to God for forgiveness, God can respond in the same way and say, I forgive you. Not because our sin isn't a big deal, it's a huge deal, uh, but because somebody else has paid the punishment for that sin. And that was Jesus Christ, the better David who came, the better king that now rules over God's people. All right? So God wasn't light on sin. God was incredibly severe on sin. It's just that Jesus took the punishment for our sin, for David's sin. So here's a second, second question. Well, wait a minute. Isn't this story of David and Bathsheba then just another example of men going wrong? I mean, don't we already, aren't we getting enough of this in our culture today of powerful, influential men objectifying women and just taking advantage of them for their own selfish gratification? And absolutely, like, our hearts break for that. Like, that is not the picture of manhood that God has intended. But again, we praise God that, again, our hope isn't in David. Our hope is in the second David, is in Jesus Christ, a, a perfect man who came and lived a life where he did not objectify women. He did not use women for his own gratification. So if you see time and time, again, Jesus elevating the worth and dignity of women wherever he went and where he valued women, he laid down his life for women so, the, so that, like when Christian marriage is defined, in the book of Ephesians, the command to husbands is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we have a king who is there to help men redeem biblical manhood. So we are men not fixated on our own self-gratification, but men who are ready to sacrifice and lay down our lives for the good of the women around us. All right? So again, our hope isn't in David. Our hope is in the better David, Jesus Christ. And the last question we might ask is, well, wait a minute. So <laughs> this is one we ought to be, all ought to be asking. Okay, if King David, who killed Goliath, could do something this stupid, like what's, what hope do I have? Like if I'm going to try to follow Jesus, like is, is this inevitable for me? Am I one day just going to fall big time to temptation? And again, our hope isn't in, did David make it or not? But our hope is in Jesus Christ, the better David. Listen to Hebrews 4. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. And so don't get lost in the high priest thing. The high priest in that day was an intermediary between God and the people. So now the book of Hebrews just keeps showing that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So Jesus is better than having a high priest because here's why. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like Jesus gets it. Like if you are tempted, you're in that temptation watch area and you need help because you see a fall is coming, you get on your knees, you get into the presence of Jesus and you cry out to him for help and he will understand. He's fought every battle against sin that you have. In fact, much more intense because we give in. He never gave in. He's been tempted in far stronger ways than we ever will be because he never gave in, right? 
And so when you're in his presence and he gets what you're going through and he's there to give you grace to help in your time of need. So again, you don't run from him, you run to him. So let me just close, let me just close and just lead us into prayer here. And I want to pray specifically for three, three types of us that might be here this morning. All right. Three, three people, three kinds of people. So first, maybe, maybe we're really well aware this morning of a big fall that we have made or that we are making and we are just kind of hiding that right now. We are just kind of tucked away and I'm not talking about it and people looking at me maybe see everything's good, but but there's this sin that I'm just hiding. May David's heart this morning show us that the best thing to do with hidden sin is to get it out and to take it to a God who is merciful, to get it out and get some people around you that you can share that with, who will be there with you and pray for you. Uh, because right now, just tucking that sin in you is just killing you. And it's just killing your relationships. It's cutting you off from God. And God says, I am merciful. Would you just confess that? Would you just get that out of your heart? So uh, I've been praying this morning that the Holy Spirit would do that in some hearts today. Just rip open hearts that have been trying to hide sin. Maybe um, maybe some of us today are really well aware of a big fall that we've had, and our conclusion has been, uh, God would never forgive me. God, God could not forgive this one. I talked to a man like that a couple weeks ago, was so convinced that it's over for him, but if he could just start living different so his kids wouldn't do what he did, then that would be the way he wants to spend the rest of his life. And I just had to circle back and say, no, no, no. Like, first of all, God wants to forgive you right now. And there were some pretty big things on his list that he has done. But but um, I told him the story of David. He goes, well, I haven't done that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, yeah. So God is a merciful God who will forgive. So if any of you this morning doubt that, would you please hear the truth that Jesus is the one who died to take away our sin? And he is incredibly powerful. What he did on the cross covers every sin that has ever been committed. And so maybe today's the day you finally understand the gospel, that God wants to forgive you and set you free from that sin because he is merciful and he loves you. And last, maybe the third group, it's just really been on my heart, is just day to day, just we're trying to follow Jesus and and we have some good days, and then we have some bad days, and we're battling sin. Maybe the call here is um, the call here is um, how's that dash light on your on your the dashboard light, um, the joy in Jesus light going? Like, is is there a real joy there? And if we're bored with Jesus, that's not on Him. That's on us. Our eyes are elsewhere. And so, guys, that's one of the conditions most favorable for us going into sin is if we lose our joy in Jesus. And so maybe that's what you score up with Jesus about today. You just go, Jesus, I, I've lost my joy. And Jesus, help me see you in fresh ways so that once again, you are my joy so that sin is less desirable because I have you. And so if that's your deal today, maybe that's something you bring to some people in your life and just go, would you pray for me? as I fight for joy uh, in Jesus, that it's just not there. And that's not a battle you win alone. You're going to need need some people walking with you and praying with you through that. But 
please know that's not uncommon. That's a, that's a common battle for followers of Jesus to have that constant joy in him. So let me read this verse to close us up. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.